Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hello and welcome back to History Hack. It's uh, Beth and Beth here for this particular presentation today, and we are both particularly excited about this one, aren't we, Beth? We are embracing our inner children. We are indeed, yeah, very stoked for this one. So our guest today is Dr. Robin Muir, who is a lecturer in media and communication at the University of Surrey, and also the founder of the Disney Culture and Society Research Network. And today we are talking to Robin about her forthcoming book, the Disney Princess Phenomenon, A Feminist Analysis. Welcome, Robin. Thanks so much, Beth and Beth. Thanks so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Oh, we're delighted to have you with us today. So if we kick off with our first question, um, and as very big Disney fans, we couldn't resist starting off with this. Um, we have to ask you, Robin, who was your favourite Disney princess as a child and maybe now as an adult? Maybe that's changed and why? Oh, gosh, this is the best question to start with. I could talk about this all day. Um, okay, so as a child, when I was, it's kind of changed a lot over time. And I think that says something very interesting about the Disney princesses themselves as a phenomenon, because there is this argument from Disney themselves where they say in their Dream Big Princess campaign, you know, for every girl who dreams big, there's a princess to show her it's possible. And it's their way of kind of showing that uh, for every single person, there's a princess out there that can, you know, be a role model to them, regardless of, you know, what your thoughts are. So no one has to have the the same favourite princess. So I guess mine has changed over time quite considerably. When I was really young, um, my favourite princess was Cinderella. And I asked my mum why this was, because as as the, as like a two-year-old, I don't particularly remember. Um, but apparently I was obsessed with Cinderella um, when I was younger. I really loved the colours and the sounds from the from the film and I love the mice and that of course it's one of the most iconic transformation scenes when she transforms from her from her rags to that beautiful ball gown and actually I do have to admit Disney have released some Disney 100 Funko Pops um and one of them is the Cinderella dress transformation and I literally saw it and I just immediately added it to my basket and bought it. Like it was like it, there was no even there was no question. I just immediately <laughs> purchased it. Um, so Cinderella is still quite um, strong for me. Um, I wouldn't necessarily say she's my favourite princess anymore, but she was definitely my favourite as a child. I also remember loving Ariel quite a lot as a kid. Um, I was born in 1994, so it was a very kind of like good time. But I also really remember um, watching kind of Pocahontas and Mulan uh, and Kida in Atlantis, The Lost Empire. They were some of my favourites kind of growing up. As an adult now, I would say... 
Cinderella still holds a really special place in my heart. And the first time that I ever met her, I cried. Um, I was just so overwhelmed with this concept of like meeting this like childhood favorite princess of mine. But actually, my favorite princess is Pocahontas. Whenever I meet her at Disney parks, I get super overwhelmed and really emotional. Um, I just find her to be this strong, powerful, amazing person um, that just always wants to do the right thing. And I think that's really inspiring to me. But ironically, the other princess that I get super emotional about and I would say I see the most of myself in as well as much as I would love to be like Pocahontas um in the way that she's so strong and um athletic and just really kind of oh yeah she's just amazing I'm such a fangirl over her um but I see the most of myself in Elsa um so when when Frozen came out it really kind of spoke to me. Uh, her, her character really spoke to me. And then when Frozen 2 came out, honestly, when she started singing Show Yourself, I had a full arm breakdown in the cinema. My husband was next to me like, girl, are you okay? And I was like, no, I am not okay. I am the one that I've been waiting for all of my life. Thank you very much. Like, And it was just, yeah, Elsa's journey like really speaks to me. Um, so I'd say they're kind of like the the main ones for me kind of Cinderella as that really beginning um introduction um but definitely kind of Pocahontas and Elsa uh my hardcore absolute favorites but I do have soft spots for you know Mulan, Merida, Moana, Raya love them all. And that's I think that's really interesting it will lead nicely into the the next question actually those three princesses that you've picked have all come across from different decades now as you said you were born in 94 I'm 93 Beth I think are you 90 I'm 91 yes so similar generation we're of that generation that got those 90s princesses as well we got Belle we got Ariel we got those that the renaissance era that we are firmly of those of that era um and it's really interesting to hear you pick the different princesses so for, for example and I think I think Beth, you might be the same as well, based off something I saw the other day. But my favourite's Belle, always has been, and like you said, met, met her at the Disney parks, and I got so emotional. I was, like, <laughs> right, I was like, oh my gosh, it's Belle. Um, but they have been there for so many years, haven't they? Every uh, it, iconic Disney character. If you take out Mickey, if you take out Minnie, it is the princesses that is the next big group, and they have been entertaining audiences for decades. When would you say that they've become this first real cultural phenomenon, this sort of powerhouse, as it were? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. And it's something that I kind of discuss in my book as well. And I'm just going to bring up my glorious proofs um, because something that I was kind of like doing research into is that there is so there is a difference in how I kind of talk about the Disney princesses versus how other people may commonly um kind of see them as so most people when they think of Disney princesses they're thinking of the Disney princess franchise and I would say the the birth of the Disney princess franchise was the moment where Disney really kind of saw how the princesses had started to become quite this kind of cultural phenomenon and of course wanted to take advantage of that as any business would right 
So there's a really great uh, there's a really great quote um, from Peggy Orenstein, um, who was doing um, a little bit of a, an interview with Andy Mooney, who was the chairman of Disney Consumer Products um, at the time, and basically spearheaded uh, the creation of the Disney Princess franchise. Because before the Disney Princess franchise, the princesses were were there, but they were just all separate. So you had you know your Snow White, your Cinderella. Um, your Aurora, you had um, Ariel, Belle, Jasmine. They just kind of built um, franchises around, sorry, not franchises, but films around um, Pocahontas and Mulan. Um, so it wasn't actually until 2000 that the Disney Princess franchise was created. So before that, princesses were just marketed separately and they just kind of existed in their own kind of film worlds. Um, and there's this great quote from from Orenstein um, when uh, that's quoting kind of an interview with Andy Mooney. And he's basically talking about how he was standing in line for um, a Disney on Ice show. And he basically saw loads of girls attempting to dress up as Disney princesses because there was no merchandise for Disney princesses at that time, it would seem. Um, so they would do it. They were making their own stuff and like families were making their own princess costumes. Um, it was just like generic princess costumes, um, like Halloween costumes. And at that point, Andy Mooney was like, we should like do something about this and that's kind of how the Disney Princess franchise was born and I think that's something that's very interesting because I argue that in that sense the Disney Princess franchise was born out of the Disney Princess fandom and I think whenever you know there becomes a fandom I think that's where you are kind of like creating these you know cultural phenomenons and I think that the Disney princesses had had become a cultural phenomenon at that point. If you've got fans that are literally going, okay, let's just like find any costume so that I can be Belle or I can be Ariel, you know, let's do it. Um, so I think that's something that's kind of been in the making now for a good few years before 2000, but obviously, you know, it's been 23 years now since the, the Disney princess, um, franchise has been created um but for me i talk about the disney princesses as a phenomenon uh to to kind of acknowledge that they are this cultural phenomenon that girls and boys and anybody can engage with um and enjoy and participate in but also it's to acknowledge some of those princesses who um, were not included in that franchise. So one of my other absolute soft spots uh, is Kida um, from Atlantis, The Lost Empire. I adore Kida. I think she is amazing. I named my dog after her. Um, I, you know, I love Kida, but she's not in the Disney Princess franchise. And I think one of the things that is very interesting about my interpretation of the phenomenon. It allows us to kind of look beyond what Disney selected as these kind of like princesses that they, you know, wanted to include in this big marketing campaign. And we get to look beyond that and look at Ilon Wee from the Black Cauldron and look at Kida and even look at Anna and Elsa and Moana, all of which who have not been officially included in the Disney Princess franchise, although they're kind of hinting at it slowly. The same with Raya. Um, so I think that's quite interesting that how that Disney Princess 
franchise as a phenomenon has changed over time and how Disney are kind of negotiating that as well. That's really fascinating how both it came from the ground up and, you know, like today you go in the Disney store and there's all these outfits for kids and, you know, thinking about how it actually, you know, came from people making their own costumes to them realising, oh, there's actually going to be a demand for this. Um, and also what you're talking about there about the kind of erasure in a sense of particular princesses not being deemed for whatever reasons to actually be part of the official princess franchise. Um, and then, yeah, we're going to get a look at um, now about some examples of particular princesses and kind of the ways in which they've been represented. But I have to digress and go back to the, the favourite princesses in the theme parks, because where you're talking about Pocahontas, um, who was my absolute favourite as a child, and also Belle as well. Um, yeah, I just remember going to the theme park. I didn't get to meet her, sadly, but I um, I did meet John Smith at um, Disneyland Paris. And I remember like I had my little autograph book going around and like getting them all to sign it and he was like lots and lots of kisses and I was like oh this is great <laughs> you know putting aside like controversial you know John Smith Pocahontas stuff of course um, in history um, and the way it is in the Disney film but yeah I had to throw that out there. <laughs> yeah absolutely and I think it's it is one of those things where especially when you're thinking about um, kind of the live action films that are being recreated we are literally getting a live action Disney princess film for every single mm. princess. Um, but Pocahontas has understandably, um, mm -hmm. you know, not included in this. And it is it is completely understandable. Although Pocahontas is one of my absolute all time favourite princesses, the film itself is deeply problematic. Um, it completely like ignores the horrors of colonialism. It mm -hmm. romanticises colonialism. You know, John Smith is seen as this, you know, strong and charismatic you know man when actually like he's an imperialist like he's literally a colonizer and then apparently in the space of like one song his all of these imperial thoughts mm. just magically disappeared and now you know it always when I when I was watching it for my analysis and stuff and there's this point where John Smith goes back to you know the 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 Englishman and he's like but this is their land and I'm like how I know that it's one of those where, like, you know it's a film, so they've only got, you know, an hour and a half to tell a story that could span, you know, that really is spanning, you know, decades of of, of history there. So you understand that they're trying to obviously, you know, shorten timelines down. Mm. But, yeah, I think with Pocahontas, it's a particularly complex film because realistically the film probably should not have been made in the way that it was made at all um because it's just completely historically incorrect and it and it really gives off a very problematic you know viewpoint of a completely revised history mm. and that's you know that's deeply problematic and we see that happening elsewhere not just in disney but also you know in education and you know the things that we actually learn about in terms of britain's role you know as somebody from the uk uh you know in terms of british britain's role in in colonialism and, and imperialism and how that's impacted countries all over the world and you know for me i think huge companies that are telling these stories that are being accessed by young people and by adults as well have a responsibility to make sure that these stories are being told properly. 
absolutely. And um, as you said with Pocahontas, there is that complexity there. Whereas, as you said, you know, Pocahontas is both of ours, one of our favorite princesses. And as a character, she is incredible. She's just yeah. so likable and just so just has so many amazing qualities about her. So she is, you know, is an amazing character to have had on screen as children, um, you know, and even now. I think she's a great character. It's just, as you said, you know, the way the rest of the film is constructed and the other characters then adds those very problematic elements. Um, but to have some examples of some other princesses now, I mean, I guess we've got kind of like the um, the very early Disney princesses like Snow White and Princess Aurora. And obviously they're very kind of, very different um, in kind of the character's aims and the way they're presented to some of the later princesses. Are there any princesses you particularly kind of enjoyed talking about how they've been represented by Disney? Yeah, I mean, for me, one of the biggest things with my with my book, which was which was based which was based on my PhD thesis, um, was to kind of explore how the representations and the images of femininity had changed over time and something that I did uh, in my research and now is explained in my book is I created a film analysis framework that basically allowed me to kind of track these micro changes in each film to track how these representations of femininity had changed over time um, and as a result of that Kind of analysis i created a typology so actually the the disney princesses uh, in my research are split into five waves of femininity um and i can talk about those um a little bit later on but in terms of actually like picking out some princesses in terms of how things have changed i think especially across different generations like when i talk to my mum my mum's like my my princesses were snow white cinderella and aurora whereas our princesses were Ariel Bell, Jasmine, Pocahontas and Mulan, whereas um, children today, their princesses are, you know, Moana, Anna, Elsa. Um, so I think kind of thinking about how that's changed over time. I mean, Aurora, I think Aurora is asleep for nearly all of her film and has literally no say in anything of her life, of her situation, nothing. And then she just wakes up and then her film ends. Um, and it's a film that literally is about her and is named after her. And I think that's a very kind of frustrating um, thing to watch as a woman. Um, and I think, you know, that her her representation, but even, you know, thinking about Snow White and Cinderella, um, you know, they were very domestic, they were passive, they were victims, they desired romance, they got romance, and then their story kind of ended with that. Um, whereas if I can then pick out one from kind of like the 90s, I do think Belle is a really good example. I mean, Belle was the first princess that read books and th this was like mind-blowing because we'd never seen princesses do such things we'd just seen princesses basically say that they wanted to you know dance off into the sunset with a man of their choice like Belle just wanted to read and have adventure in the great wide somewhere like that's all she really wanted she wasn't actually interested in romance um 
until right at the end of her film. She was also really assertive and, you know, she was very uh, assertive against a man like Gaston, who, you know, is still a very relevant villain, um, even in today's, you know, current public discourse, right? And... I think that's a, a very kind of strong representation of of women there. And of course, there are some issues with the princesses that have been created in that time, you know, your Ariel, your Belle, your Jasmine, because there kind of comes a point, and again, I can talk about this when we're talking about the waves a bit, but there comes a point where they want all of these things that are just completely separate and, and different to to desiring a romantic relationship then all of a sudden at the end of the film that's all they want and then the film ends so we don't really know whether Belle got adventure in the great wide somewhere really we just know that she was dancing with the beast at the end and then that was it um you know so there are some problems there but I think it was it was such a significant change um that we saw and again you could see that again um with princesses like Mulan, you know, Mulan literally went to war, albeit as a man, um, and actually was able to achieve her assertiveness, her leadership as a man, but then also got to continue that at the end as a woman and saved China as a woman. Spoiler alert. Sorry, everyone. Um, but and that's and that's very special because again it, you're kind of building on it as each generation kind of comes through you're you're building on on what's happened before and this is very representative of feminism as a whole right like every you know wave of feminism uh it shares you know um concepts from the past but also builds new concepts in and you can really also see that happening with the princesses and then of course some of the more recent ones kind of post um 2000 you know tiana i think um was a very special princess in the sense of it was the first time that african american girls and women were represented as princesses and were being told you too are a princess now of course tiana spends the majority of her film as a green frog which on the other hand, was actually deeply problematic because it was kind of like Disney going, we've, we've, we've created an African American princess and we were like, great, awesome, brilliant. This is what we want. We want more representation. And then they were like, but we've chosen to tell her story through the princess and the frog where she will be a frog for the majority of that film. And yeah, I don't, know why they chose to do that there's been a lot of kind of like scholarly criticism of that film based on how you know tiana's body and tiana um herself was represented in that film as a black woman um and that is something that you know they will need to learn from but another thing that was very special about tiana is that tiana wanted her own business like that was her dream she wanted her own business and she did indeed become a businesswoman. There were some problematic things that happened. And I can kind of talk about that when we're talking about the waves. But I think that was another really big kind of step forward um, in some ways, but also a step back uh, in others. And then, of course, some of our more recent princesses, you know, if we think about the likes of Merida, 
and Elsa and Moana, they completely reject the notion of romance at all. Like up until Merida, every single princess's story had involved romance in some way and always resulted in some kind of like romantic relationship at the end. Merida was just straight up like, no, no, thank you. I do not wish for this. And that was very refreshing. Um, And then again, with Elsa and Moana, just wasn't even mentioned. Like, it just wasn't even relevant to their storyline. And then even with Anna, her, of course, hands. I mean, we all hate hands. The worst. And she learned from that. And then she has this relationship with Kristoff that is literally one of the most healthiest, positive relationships that we've ever seen on screen in a Disney film, especially in a princess film. So again, kind of the way that these representations have changed over time, I think really kind of show how public discourse has been influencing um, the way that women are being represented and the demand for that further diverse representation, I think is really key, but also that Disney are listening. And I think something to remember as well is that when films are being created, these are like years in the making. I'm talking like eight, potentially 10 years before you know from conceptualization to actual kind of like production and then it and then it's released so these are also kind of things to think about change is coming and we're demanding for that change but sometimes it it can't always be absolutely immediate um but there's definitely been some some significant change for the disney princesses yeah those, those are all really really good points um it, it's as you say, the change is so important, isn't it? It is so important, but it will take time to to uh, to get going. And they are doing the change. They are moving in that direction. Um, but it's just going to take a bit of time. Now, I, I must. This is a quite an important question. I think my my next one. If there's one thing that you can say that Disney have completely successfully done without a shadow of a doubt, it's commercial commercializing their product. Whether it be um, Mickey and Minnie, whether it be buying Marvel, buying Star Wars, they know how to make their project product like there. That, that is one thing they know completely how to do. How important do you think the princesses have been to that commercialization? Do you think they, I mean, for me, certainly from a very basic understanding of, of what it all means, I would say that the princesses are as a franchise, one of the most important aspects to Disney. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they, as a franchise, they make them billions of dollars a year. Um, it's it's an incredibly successful franchise. Um, and I would say something that Disney does incredibly well is they are storytellers. Ultimately, as a business, Disney are storytellers and the way that they are able to tell that story across a wide range of media outlets is incredibly um, impressive. Um, they I mean, for me, I yes, I'm an academic. I critically engage with with Disney and the Disney princesses, but I'm also a huge fan of Disney. I go to the parks. I watch the films. I listen to the music. I have a Disney Plus subscription. Like I buy, I buy the merchandise. I literally have a, a Mickey jumper on right now. You can see, you know, yes, I see your your belt up. I love it. Yeah. I've got the Funko Pops behind me. I, you know, I, I love Disney. 
Um, and that's what that's one of the reasons why I research it, because I, I want them to do the best that they can do. Um, and I think critically engaging with with what they do is is one way in which, you know, we can we can do that, especially as as fans and especially for me as a as an academic fan. Um, so I think, yeah, the princesses have been a huge um, part of Disney's commercial success. But I think actually from a, just thinking about even more of the bigger picture rather than just looking at like particular franchises, the Disney synergy, I think is the key to their kind of success there. And I think many, many people have written about kind of Disney synergy. Um, but the way that they are able to not only tell a story through their films, but also through their merchandise, through their park experiences. And that's one of the reasons why I conceptualise the Disney princesses as a phenomenon, because these aren't just princesses that you can see on a DVD or on your Disney Plus account. These are princesses whose dresses you can buy. You can buy a wand, you can buy a tiara, you can buy a pencil case, you can buy a lunchbox, you can buy pyjamas, you can buy a duvet set, you can... In the stage, you can literally get those delicious, oh, I can't remember what they're called, but they're those fish-shaped crackers. Golden fish. Oh, fish. Uh, the, oh yeah, is it just, they just called goldfish or something? Like? Oh, oh, God, I'm going to have to Google this now. All of my will <laughs> be like, Robin, how do you not know what this is? Well, okay, fish, golden crackers. <laughs> I don't know what I'm Googling at this point. Um, no, I don't think that's it either. Is it goldfish crackers? I have no idea. <laughs> um, but you can literally get like Disney princess, like goldfish crackers. Um, you can get Disney princess Heinz spaghetti. Um, so you not only can you watch them, but you can also kind of like actually engage with them as a fan. You can buy their merchandise. You can become a princess should you choose, you know. And then, of course, you can go and meet the princesses in real life at Disney parks. You get to meet your hero, your role model in real life. And I think that that synergy and that storytelling across all of these different media platforms, I think is a really key um, part to Disney's success. But I think specifically in relation to the Disney princesses, it is probably one of the absolute reasons why they become so successful because it is this case of, okay, yeah, you can watch your favourite princess, you can become your favourite princess, and then you can go and meet your favourite princess. And of course, all of that then involves, you know, families, adults, whoever, parting with their money in order to do that. I'm hoping to go to Disneyland next year uh, in California and they have at Napa Rose at the at Disney's Grand Californian Hotel, they have a Disney princess breakfast. That is most likely an extortionate amount of money, but amount of money that I will save for and, and pay for because yes, I would like to have a princess breakfast. Thank you very much. And I would like to go and sit and eat my princess themed food and then go and meet the princesses. Um, because they just kind of capture you in that way. And it's that storytelling, it's that nostalgia. And I think that's something that's also really key to their commercial success. Absolutely. And we've um, mentioned some of the live action projects um, already in the podcast, but yeah, I was interested to um, have a think, um, both in terms of um, 
them kind of having made some tweaks to some of the characters. Um, so I'm thinking like Cinderella, if I remember the live action, there's a few changes to kind of her personality or behavior to make it feel a little bit more modern. Um, and also um, things such as like Jasmine got her own extra song um, in the live action Aladdin um, and also things like inclusive casting. So Halle Bailey is our new The Little Mermaid, which is really exciting. So is there anything you'd like to, to pick up on those? Absolutely. Ironically, this is something that I'm actually starting a new project on with an amazing scholar called Rebecca Rowe. Um, she is an expert in adaptation studies and um, has done some work on uh, how the Disney princesses have been adapted. And actually, myself and Rebecca were at the Popular Culture Association Conference in San Antonio, Texas, a few weeks ago. Um, and we actually presented um, some of our current work, which is looking at basically how Disney are adapting their princesses um, in their live action films and how how they are trying to potentially to redress some of the more problematic elements of the original animation um, and in in these live action films. Um, so do keep your eyes peeled because Becca and I um, have hopefully got some work coming out on this uh, over the the coming years as we go through that publication process. Um, I have a lot of thoughts on live action. Um, as a disclaimer, at the moment, I do not like their live action princess films. I find them... As a fan, I can like engage in the nostalgia and I'm like, oh, look, you know, I'm seeing this film like reimagined from my childhood brilliant. As a scholar um, who specifically focuses on gender, I get so frustrated when I watch these films because I feel like we get all of these promises about how they're going to try and make them, you know, better. And then I watch them and I'm like, I don't know how you've managed this, but you made it worse. Um, so like with, with Cinderella, for example, um, there's this point where, I think they came out and said, you know, we're making this a more feminist interpretation of, of Cinderella. And I was like, OK, this is going to be interesting, because one of the things with adaptation that I've learned from Rebecca is that. When you're adapting a story that's already been told, especially something like a famous fairy tale, like. Ultimately, the key plot points do have to remain. So, like, if those key plot points are problematic, you know, for example, Aurora just falling asleep and then, you know, she's rendered completely powerless. Like, you can't really change that. Like, there's some stuff that you can do. I know that Serena Valentino, uh, who's a Disney author and she's been doing like a really cool villain series, has done some really cool stuff with Aurora. But overall, you can't change the plot of the story. And I think that's something that people really struggle with. Um, and I particularly struggle with because you can't always make that retelling the feminist one that you want to make it so with Cinderella they were like right well we're going to make it like this because um and we're going to have the prince and Cinderella meet before the ball so then they've met like twice so then it's fine that they go and get married and I remember being like I don't think that's going to work out how you think that's going to work out because then what happened was because she met the prince before the ball the narrative of animated Cinderella just wanting to go to the ball to just have a bit of fun wear a nice dress maybe eat some nice food have a bit of a dance have a night off and then just come back home 
that motivation then just completely changed to, well, I need to go to the board to meet this kid because I fancy him. And I remember just being kind of super frustrated by that. Um, so I think when it comes to the live actions, and this is something that Rebecca and I are working on at the moment, we're working through every single live action as it comes out. So we're particularly excited um, for The Little Mermaid. Um, I love the casting um, of uh, Hayley um, for um, for Ariel. I, I think I saw her in the trailer and I was like, you are perfect. Like the voice, everything. I just, I love it. Um, so I'm really excited, but I'm just hoping that they do it justice because again, it can be hard. You, you can't change the story from Ariel gave up her voice for a man. So how, from a feminist perspective, how are you going to navigate this to like make this a more empowering tale? I, I'm, so I'm curious to see how they're going to do that. If they change it to, she changes her, you know, she gives up her voice for, you know, because she just wants to explore the human world and Eric doesn't come into it. Great. As soon as it involves a man, though, she's just given up her voice for a man and that that doesn't change. So when it comes to The Little Mermaid um, live action adaptation, I was really excited for the casting of Halle Bailey. I think you know, when I've seen her in the trailer, I just thought you are perfect. Like the voice, everything was perfect. I just really hope that they're able to kind of like do her justice in that sense. Um, I think it's really powerful that we have representation uh, and we're, we're seeing um, a black mermaid. And I think that's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, I'm just I'm hoping that this live action proves my opinions of the other live actions wrong and they start to kind of go in a, in a better more empowered direction yeah hey i'm ryan reynolds recently i asked mint mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation they said yes and then when i asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts they said what the f- are you talking about you insane hollywood ass so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Those are really, really good points. I was just sitting while you were just talking through there, just particularly about, um, I'll start with Aurora first. I was sitting here thinking, and right, right, adaptations, Sleeping Beauty, Cinderella, right. When have they not been able to not use the plot line? And they haven't. Even in um, Maleficent, she falls asleep in Maleficent as well, doesn't she? Um, Cinderella as well. You can't take away from the plot that she is Cinderella sweeping up and that she goes to the ball. Even in 
arguably what I would say is probably the best live action Cinderella, which is Ever After with Drew Barrymore. I love that film so much, but she still at the end mm. goes to the ball and marries the prince. Like you can't get away from the key points of the story, can you? So I completely, completely agree with what you were saying there. And with obviously the new live action films as well. The, one of the things I have to say this, when people are like, but she doesn't have the red hair and she's not, it's like, it's a fictional character. Mm-hmm. Like, first of all, she's a mermaid. Yeah. Why does it matter of who, like, well, it does matter, of course, like the importance of it being a young black woman who's been picked for this role, but it shouldn't matter because as well, it's a mermaid and it's a fictional yeah. character and it's a fantastic opportunity to show these other communities in film. It's mm-hmm. a brilliant opportunity. So, People just people are baffling sometimes. Um, on to the the next point. Now, I I really like this question because this really speaks to me, and it's about how the theme parks represent their princesses. Now, Beth and I were talking before we started recording, and we've both got very very different takes on the theme parks because Beth only ever went as a child, and I only ever went as an adult. Mm. Uh, first time I went to a Disney park, I was eighteen. We went to Disneyland Paris. Um, and we just, it's not that my parents hadn't wanted to take us. It was just the way our family holidays had fallen. But I've got a much younger sister. She was, she's 12 years younger than me. And we were in France on holiday and she turned six. And my mum thought, let's go. Mm. Um, and I was 18. So the first time I experienced a Disney park was when I was 18 years old, which I think is a very, very different way of experiencing it to a six-year-old. Because uh, obviously, as an eighteen-year-old, you know that they're dressed up, and you know that they're real people. You know that they're ca- they're character actors. But the six-year-old, that is just the character. But it's that interesting phenomenon of I certainly experienced it, as you said earlier, with going to the parks and meeting the princesses and crying. I saw managed to see Belle just after they released the live-action Beauty and the Beast at Paris, and I sobbed. I absolutely sobbed. Because I was like, I've wanted to meet them for so long. Um, so I think it's really the theme parks particularly have they're like their own little world. How do you think they have, other than just the meet and greets, how have they tried to represent their princesses? Because I think they do something similar as well. They do like a Disney a princess lunch that you can go to at Paris as well. So they have represented them in many ways. Yeah, I think that's a great question. And actually I think we're like a perfect trio here because I have been to the park as a child and as an adult. And I think I think this notion of obviously we see the word Disney adult um a lot now in public discourse, especially on social media. And I think one of the things when I was doing my autoethnography in the parks is it, for me, it was very much that personal negotiation of I am a feminist and I am a I'm a scholar, but I am also a huge Disney fan. And I one of the standout moments for me when I did my pilot study was I was in the like the main kind of princess shop um, where you can like get all the princess stuff, and I saw a dingle hopper. I actually think. I have it. I have it right here. Oh, because it's not a fork. It's a dingle hopper. I saw this dingle hopper. Oh. And 
friends, it's a plastic brush, okay? Like, let's let's be real about this. This is not something that you would use to brush your hair with, okay? I still even have the tag on it. I don't know why I have a thing about tags. But this is a this is a plastic brush in the shape of a fork, and they've called it a dingle hopper. And I saw it, and I was in the middle of a conversation with my husband and I stopped everything that I was doing, yelled, it's a dingle hopper and ran and picked one up and then immediately purchased it. And my husband was gobsmacked. He didn't even know what to say. And like, how old was I at that point? Hmm. I must have been like 23 or something like that. And I spent, I can see it now, I spent $16 on this plus tax. And I had zero qualms in doing it because it represented this thing that you wanted to do when you were a kid. Like when we all know that many of us got forks and pretended to brush our hair with forks because that's what Ariel did. So the fact that they created a plastic brush that allows you to do that. And it is like, do you know what? It's a pretty nice brush. I'm kind of like giving my hair a little brush now. It's a pretty nice brush. And I, I couldn't stop. And I think that negotiation as, as an ACA fan of you're so enveloped in the moment, but then you've also kind of got to stand back and go, so how has that come about? Okay. How, 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 how have they created this significant hold on me and this significant hold on my nostalgia? So that I will literally just happily spend $16 plus tax on a plastic brush that is in the shape of a fork. That realistically, I do not use. I use a, a normal brush to brush my hair. So I think in terms of how the Disney princesses are represented at the parks, I mean, one of the key most iconic things is, of course, the castle. Um, so you've got Cinderella Castle, you've got Sleeping Beauty Castle, um, and I think that is one of the most magical things. I mean, for me, when I go to a Disney park, as soon as I see the castle, I know that I'm home. Yeah. I will cry every time. Um, and I think the castle is incredibly special. Of course, in the parks as well, the key thing is the meet and greets. And Rebecca Haynes has done some really fascinating research on kind of um, princess meet and greets and, and people who have been princess performers and how they've kind of negotiated how they're representing um, the princesses. And um, Victoria Peterson Lance has also done some really fascinating research on kind of um, princess meet and greets. So I think the meet and greets are a really powerful um element of princess representation in the parks because you you literally you get you can take a selfie with them you get their autograph um you can hug them um and wow those hugs like they I can't even describe them but they they really are something and sometimes sometimes you really need that hug um not even just necessarily from a from a Disney princess, but just from a particular character that means a lot to you. Um, I remember meeting Miko um, at, a, at a character dining breakfast, and it was literally one of the best moments of my life because I'm obsessed with Miko, um, mostly because he's Pocahontas' friend, but he's also very mischievous. So I think the the meet and greets are incredibly um, special in how they're representing their princesses, and that's very interesting because the 
the people that are friends with those princesses uh, will have to undergo some real significant kind of training um, to make sure that they are like the princess that you see in the film. So obviously, in that sense, they may be limited to an extent on how much they can kind of go down a more empowered route, even if they want to, because ultimately they are still, you know, representing something from the past, right? But I think some, um, some, sometimes you, you can, and that can be very interesting. I think another interesting way that they're represented in the parks is, of course, the parades. And I adore the parades and those beautiful floats that they make. The Frozen one is just amazing. I know that they've got a Frozen 2 one, I think, in Disneyland in California. And oh my gosh, it's just everything. Um, so I think the parades are a really magical way for, 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 guests young and old to to engage with the princesses and then of course the merchandise but I think another key way and this kind of links back to these idea of this idea of commercial success is of course the Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique um because that is where you can pay to become a princess and they do your hair they do your makeup you get a dress you get a sash you get a photo shoot you get brought over to to meet princesses I mean, wow. Unfortunately, adults are not allowed to do this, um, which makes me sad because I would 100% have a princess makeover. I would live my best life. Um, but again, it's also very expensive, though. Um, and Sabrina Mittermeier has um, done some amazing work on the parks and, and talks a lot about kind of the, the parks and middle class kingdoms. And I think that's something that's really important to remember the Disney parks are very middle class. They are not accessible for all because of the prices that they charge. Um, and especially for something like Bibbidi Bobbidi Boutique, you're looking at like 80 plus dollars at least. And that would be for the most basic package. If you're looking for the full whammy, you're looking at 150 to 200 dollars. Uh, this is just off the top of my head. So don't, you know, quote me to it, but that is a very significant kind of thing. But what I would say is something to kind of build on this, not just in terms of how the Disney theme parks have represented the princesses, but something that we can also kind of think about is how Disney fans choose to represent the princesses. Because with the rise of, you know, uh, fan studies, uh, and I'm thinking about Rebecca Williams's uh, amazing work on Disney parks here, the concept of Disney bounding and actually my colleague Rebecca Rowe has got a great chapter on on Disney bounding um, in Sabrina Mittermeier's Fan Phenomena um, book on Disney with intellect. Um, the concept of Disney bounding where you get to Disney bound as as your favourite princess and you get to interpret them in those ways and what's amazing is that when you're then at the parks other people will recognize it so people get very excited another way i think that disney also kind of like contribute to is of course their um halloween parties where when you are an adult that is the only time that you get to dress up as your favorite disney characters um and you can see some amazing stuff i think for me i went as kida um I I also forced my husband to go as Milo uh, so we were Milo and Kida um at Walt Disney World and uh but it was amazing because people recognized us like people were yelling like across Main Street like it's a it's Milo and Kida oh my gosh she's the best so you can see how 
Disney are also kind of starting to lend themselves to these, you know, fandoms and, and especially like Disney bounding, but how that's also kind of very much grown from the ground up in terms of how the princesses are being represented beyond the Disney parks. I mentioned earlier about the theme of um, well, constructions of femininity, um, which um, we were then going to return to later in the episode. So, um, Robin, if you could give us um, kind of briefly a little bit of insight. I know you mentioned the, the different waves that you talk about in your book. Um, could you yeah, tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. We'd love to. Um, so my book is split into kind of three sections. So the first is the films, the second is merchandising and marketing, and then the third is kind of consumer experiences in the theme park. So when I kind of created my film analysis framework, which then created the waves typology, I identified five waves um, of, of femininity. And then what I wanted to do with that information was explore how those waves of femininity were being remediated across the different areas of the phenomenon. So how was it being represented in merchandising and marketing? How is it being represented in um, theme park experiences? So in terms of the actually what actual waves themselves, we have the first wave. And this includes Snow White, Cinderella and Aurora. So we're talking 1937 to 1959. And something that I do in my book is I do provide an overview of kind of like the cultural history of what was happening at that time to kind of situate these princesses in, in the time um, that they were being created. And I call the first wave princesses passive dreamers because they are domestic. They are passive. Um, they are placed into victimhood by the narrative um, and they are desiring of a romantic relationship um, and don't really get a lot of development other than that. The second wave builds on the first. OK, so there's always kind of shared characteristics between each wave that kind of indicates how, you know, Femininity is changing, but it's also complex, right? And it's nuanced. So the second wave princesses I call the lost dreamers. So this features Ilomwe from the Black Cauldron, a non-franchised princess, but a princess nonetheless. She's a little bit of an anomaly, really, because she had kind of characteristics from the first wave, the second wave and the third wave. Um, so I kind of placed her as an anomaly, but she sat mostly within the second wave. The other second wave princesses are Ariel, Belle and Jasmine. So we're talking about a, a film span from about 1985 to, to 1992 there. And they are assertive. So the passivity is replaced and, and it's replaced with assertiveness. They're rebellious. They're brave and they, you know, conduct acts of bravery. But their dreams are kind of lost in the happily ever after. And this is where we start to see where when more empowered traits are introduced, like being assertive, like being rebellious, brave, they almost start to be policed by this concept and introduction of a romantic relationship. Because you notice that with all of these women, as soon as kind of the romantic relationship is introduced, the assertiveness is kind of lost, the rebelliousness, the bravery is lost, and it's just kind of replaced by this romantic relationship, which for me was very frustrating because I'm sat there like, Belle, did you ever get the adventure in the Great Wide somewhere? Like, Jasmine, did you ever get 
to explore beyond palace walls and get to see what you want to see i mean i know you've got the magic carpet and everything but it just ends with your relationships and like what's going on there um and things like that then we've got the third wave princesses so this is featuring um pocahontas mulan and kida from atlantis the lost empire uh, so another non-franchise princess so this is spanning from 1995 to 2001 and I identified these women as active leaders because in this sense, they've got that assertiveness, but they've now got those communication skills. They're negotiators, they're leaders, okay, of their people. And they are, they're sorting things out, like they're getting things done. There is still the romantic relationship and there is still an element of police in there. And something that's really interesting about the third wave is that they negotiate the romantic relationship in very different ways. So Pocahontas, when given the choice, chooses to forgo the romantic relationship with John Smith and stay with her people and, and be a leader. So that's kind of indicating that she can't really have it all. And there's definitely some kind of like post-feminism vibes happening there, which was, of course, very relevant to what was happening at the time um, in in our actual public discourse, right? Mulan, on the other hand, says no to the leadership position that's granted to her by the emperor and her romantic relationship with Li Shang is implied at the end of the film. So, again, there's this notion of, OK, you can't you can't have it all. Peter, who is not a franchise princess, gets both because actually she doesn't have to choose. She becomes Queen of Atlantis because that's her birthright. And Milo is the one that has to choose whether he wants to stay with with her in Atlantis and forgo the fact that he would literally, you know, go back um, home and be this, you know, renowned explorer, the person who discovered Atlantis. And he gives all of that up so that he can stay in Atlantis, the place that he's been looking for for so long, but also stay with Kida where, you know, this romantic relationship is being implied. And of course, Kida is the one that does not have to choose. She gets both. There's no question that she's going to need to choose. And of course, Kida is the one that is not in the Disney Princess franchise, which is a little bit frustrating, right? And of course, what's very interesting about the third wave is that these, other than Jasmine, uh, who was our first princess of colour, all of the third wave princesses are princesses of colour. And they are also the ones who really have started to develop these you know leadership communication negotiation skills but actually they are often the least marketed or merchandised right so there's a lot of kind of tension here then we move on to the fourth wave princesses and this is where i'm going to pick up on some of the comments i made about tiana and some of the issues um with with the storyline that they that they gave her um, so the fourth wave princesses are Tiana and Rapunzel. So we're looking at that. It's a very short film span, 2009 for Tiana and 2010 for Rapunzel. So although they were kind of coming out at a, almost, you know, in a similar time period to the fifth wave, um, I do keep them as separate because for me, I'm identifying them as sacrificing dreamers. The reason why I do this is because at the beginning of their films, they are determined and they are assertive. They have a dream and they want to do it. OK, Tiana wants her own business. She And she has been working hard. You know, that woman has been working all of the hours um, in the day, 
multiple jobs, never has fun. Everybody's just like, oh, we'll just settle down. Just go and have fun. She's not interested. She just wants to work. She wants to get that restaurant. And I think one of the problems with that film that's been highlighted by a lot of scholars, um, they're not um, acknowledging the wider societal structures that Tiana was working against. Tiana was a black working class woman. And they are not, you know, at the time that that film was made, um, you could clearly see that there were significant issues um, with how um, women like Tiana were, um, you know, being treated and um, racial segregation um, and things like that. And it's barely acknowledged, like barely acknowledged um we literally get a little bit of a of a like a cartoon scape almost i'm probably using the wrong terminology for this where we go from the very kind of you know rich um large mansions to the um smaller kind of housing that tiana is in that's that's about as 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 much acknowledgement as we're going to get when the the bank brothers turn and say to Tiana, you know, with a with a woman of your background, you know, you're better off where you're at. Like that's the only times that we're really being shown how much discrimination um, Tiana is up against, and I think that is problematic because it's intersectional feminism is crucial, and us understanding that Tiana wasn't just facing discrimination as a woman she was she was facing discrimination as a black woman as a working class woman and I think that's really important um so there's a lot of problems in terms of how um Disney were dealing with um with uh conversations around race uh, and ethnicity um in in that particular film um but Tiana was determined she was assertive she wanted that business Rapunzel she was determined. She was assertive. She wanted to go and find out about those floating lights. And both of them were very, very close to getting their dreams. But then both of them sacrificed those dreams for a romantic relationship. And as a result of that sacrifice, they are rewarded with the original thing that they wanted because they put the relationship first. So that's why I'm kind of conceptualising them as sacrificing dreamers um instead because there is that well it's great that you want this but if you put the relationship first we'll reward you with what you wanted in the first place and you can really see that in those storylines and then finally the fifth wave princesses are Merida who is our final member of the Disney princess franchise because then we have Anna and Elsa and Moana and I will also add Raya and Namari however Raya and the Last Dragon fell outside of my analysis window, which made me very sad. Um, but I also kind of am including them in the Disney princess phenomenon. Whether they will be in the fifth wave or whether we may get a sixth wave in future, we don't know. But they are definitely in the phenomenon in my eyes. Um, but yes, Anna, Elsa and Moana, as well as Raya and Namari, are not franchise princesses. Um so we're looking at a film span here of kind of 2012 to two, uh, to uh, 2019. Um, and these are the innovative leaders. So again, we've got that assertiveness. We've got that leadership. But interestingly, what's really built on in the fifth wave is this element of female support. 
And this is something that we've barely seen in princess films. I'd say Pocahontas has got Nakoma and Grandmother Willow. We love Grandmother Willow. Amazing. Um, to an extent, Tiana had Charlotte, but then, yeah, sometimes I was like, Charlotte, why don't you ask your, Charlotte, help her more, <laughs> please, like, help her more. Um, so in the fifth wave, you really see this female support come through, Merida and her mum, Anna and Elsa together, Moana and her, you know, Grandma Tala, her own mother, but then how she learns from those women and applies that female support to Taka. Um, that's really magical. And then, of course, the lack of romantic relationships. Merida rejects it outright, not interested, literally turns her mum into a bear just to avoid getting married, which is an absolute mood. Um, Anna goes for that classic, oh, love is an open door. I'm going to marry a man that I first met. And it's really like disgraceful that you're not letting me. But the fact that like Elsa and then Kristoff are like calling her out on it is like Disney almost teasing at this old way of kind of like princess thinking, right? Um, And then Elsa, not interested at all. Moana, never even mentioned. It's just automatically assumed that she's going to become, you know, the the chief um of Motunui and th there's just no mention of the concept of a romantic relationship and that was just so refreshing to kind of see so that is where we're at with the waves at the moment but we will see where Raya and Namari will fit into this and of course some future princess films that are coming out as well which is really exciting oh like that the way you've just broke those characters down into those different categories. I'll never be able to look at them the same way again. Um, it's really, really interesting. It's absolutely fascinating. Obviously, the whole point of this podcast, we've been talking about the femininity in Disney. We've been looking at the past. But obviously, to look at the past, we need to obviously think about what's going to come as well. We need to look at what's, what lies ahead for Disney and its princesses. Will we have more Disney princesses? How will they be portrayed and so on? What would you like to see Disney do in future films and other activities as well, as we've referred to throughout the podcast with regards to its princesses? Oh, gosh, what a great question. Um, I think, ultimately, the biggest thing that I want to see is more diversity. OK, uh, the majority of princesses are white um, and I want to see more diversity when it comes to race and ethnicity. I would also like to see more diversity when it comes to the actual kind of appearance and representation of princesses themselves. I think something that is deeply problematic is that most of these princesses' heads are bigger than their waists. Their eyes are like really massive. And I know that this is the animation style and I do respect that. However, it is it creates a unrealistic expectation of what women look like and we don't look like that like it's literally scientifically impossible to look the way that these women are being drawn and i think moana was a really good introduction where she has muscles okay and her waist isn't as as it isn't like smaller than her head um and that was very refreshing to see but i would like more representation and more and different bodies being shown um to, to be princesses too i think in terms of when i'm thinking about kind of like my waves and like these representations of femininity i think something that i'd also really like to see is kind of like different skill sets 
um because you don't have to be you know like a, a sword fighting bow wielding warrior all the time like you can you can be studious you can you know be a scientist and i would like to see some different kind of skill sets for for princesses as well i think recently we've seen a lot of princesses that have kind of like those magical powers um so thinking about elsa you know um moana's kind of connection to the water rapunzel's you know magical rapunzel's magical glowing hair and obviously Anna, I think, is a really interesting addition to this because Anna does like nearly all the same things as Elsa and she doesn't have magical powers. And I think that's really cool. But I'd like to see some princesses that maybe don't have magical powers that are just doing magical things in the community that they are in. And actually, one of the things that I'd really like to see, and this is something that I saw um, with Elena of Avalor when I met her at the Disney parks. And um, Diana Leon Boys has got a book uh, that's recently come out that's talking all about um princess elena of avalor as a princess on the periphery um and uh emily aguilo perez uh, who's also done um work on um elena of avalor something that really interested me when i met um elena was she she actually when she like went to sign my autograph book she was like oh you've bought some royal documents for me to sign and it really like spurred me because i was like yeah, because all of these women are princesses, but we never actually see them doing like leadershipy, princessly duties. Like Pocahontas, we did. Like Pocahontas was solving some real significant issues in her community and, you know, with the colonialism that was happening um, in her film. But I would like to see more of that. I would like to see, you know, kind of. And you kind of got a hint of it in Frozen 2 where you saw Elsa as a leader and she was kind of directing her people and ensuring people were safe. But I'd like to see women in actual leadership positions doing actual like royal duties if they're leading a kingdom. Something that I would love to see. Frozen 3, right? I want Prince Hans to come back we love to hate him i want him to come back and i want there to be a whole situation where you know he's going to try and take the kingdom and i want to see elsa and anna team up and basically i want a full strategy on how prince hans and the southern isles are to be defeated like that that's what i want to see i want to see leadership actually taking place so i think yeah for me i want some diversity in terms of the bodies that we're seeing i want some diversity in terms of the different communities and the different countries that we're seeing represented I'd like some diversity in the different skill sets. But I think something else that's also very important to me is I would also like to see some LGBTQ plus representation as well. I would like to see a trans princess. I would like to see a queer princess because I think anybody can be a princess. And I think if if that's what the tagline is, if 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 you want to dream big, there's a princess to show you it's possible, regardless of who you are. I think the princess lineup needs to reflect that. No, I couldn't agree more on that. I'd I'd love to see that in the future. Absolutely. Oh, we'd love talking to you, Robin. We could have we could talk about Disney princesses for hours, couldn't we, Beth? <laughs> oh, we really could. I could. I've got so much more I want to say and contribute to this conversation, but we just don't have the time. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's been the best. I could definitely do this for the rest of the day as well. So maybe someday soon we can do it again. <laughs> 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 